There's a strong link between sports and medicine. If you're not at the top of your medical game, you can't play well, or you just can't play. Welcome to Bruce the Sports Doc with medical expert Dr. Bruce Grossinger. This program looks at advances and breakthroughs in medicine and how it relates to sports. Plus, you'll receive preventative tips and analysis of sports injuries this week. Now, here's Bruce the Sports Doc. Welcome to the newest edition of Bruce the Sports Doc. We've got a great show today. We'll be talking to Dr. Joseph Fernandez, our sports medicine doctor, about meniscus injuries, that is cartilage injuries to the knee. We'll talk about how to diagnose and treat these very common injuries. I'll also be giving you an update on concussions. And as always, we lead off the show with a discussion of current events in sports. And actually, the last week or so has been a busy time. And I wanted to welcome to the show our analyst, Spencer the Wizard. Hey, Bruce. What's happening, man? Everything's good. We're getting off the week in style. I want to lead off by something, uh, talking about something we never speak about, which is women's soccer. I must say, I was uh, I was riveted to the TV to watch a soccer game, something I can't say I've done too often. And it was a real heroic effort by the Americans. I thought that this Abby Wambach would be certainly going to the uh, – the, 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 the uh, time capsule as a heroic figure. That is, in overtime of this game, she basically came in and, and headed a goal in, and it seemed like the United States was going to win the game. Very disappointing that it looked like Japan scored on what I would call a couple of cheap goals, and it's unfortunate because the American soccer team, to my eye, and again, I'm not a, I'm not a soccer aficionado, certainly looked bigger, stronger, and faster. And I was disappointed, frankly, with the uh, format. That is, after the uh, time elapsed in the game, rather than overtime, some type of overtime where they actually played soccer, they actually had a shootout. It reminded me of regular season NHL games, which are often solved by a shootout. I think a shootout is, is kind of hokey because it's not really soccer. And it's regrettable that literally the World Cup, the highest you know, the greatest stage had to be uh, settled on, on the basis of uh, penalty shots. And I, you know, I, I guess uh, I, I would be disappointed with that format. You know, I think that if you're going to play soccer and you're talking about the World Cup, you should at least let a goal be scored in the normal course of soccer. But in any event, we got that off my chest. Uh, what was your take on the, uh, the, the soccer final between the United States and Japan? Well, first, I'd like to congratulate the women of the United States soccer team. Uh, what an amazing couple weeks it has been for them. Uh, they are truly American heroes. They have really captured the nation and brought back the soccer spirit that this country needs and longs for. Uh, I would like to give a shout-out to Abby Wombat, her clutch goals in this World Cup, Hever O'Reilly, um, and Hope Solo, uh, the goalie of the United States, even though she let up a couple goals at the end to Japan, and unfortunately, uh, people might remember her for that. She has, she has, you know, she let it all out on the field. She, she's an amazing goalkeeper, and she battled through injury there in the, in the lasting minutes of the game, and, um, and just a heroic effort by the soccer team. Uh, unfortunately, I think the United States lost the game because in the last 15 
15 minutes after Wombat scored, they were kind of just stalling and they were looking at the clock too much. And in, and instead of playing aggressive U.S. soccer, which we're accustomed to seeing, they sat back on their heels and let Japan dictate play. Um, you know, the goal that Japan had at the end to tie the game um, really that that was really the deciding factor. After that, I believe Japan was going to win because for the U.S. to deal with the adversity and go into a shootout like that, Japan just had all the momentum at that point. Um, even before Japan scored the tying goal, they still had chances, and the U.S. defenders made plays when Hope Solo was out of position. So you just have to credit Japan for dealing with that adversity and coming on strong and getting the tying goal. But the U.S., uh, unfortunately, was just looking at the clock and not playing aggressive. And uh, and just letting Japan dictate that play, and um, but I just want to credit them on their amazing run, and hopefully our country will not look back on those last couple minutes, and uh, just an amazing, memorable performance by this year's group. Just to follow up on that, we certainly want to congratulate Japan. The country's been through a lot with the weather with the weather disasters this year. The United States women team with an amazing win against Brazil. And, uh, again, I found myself watching soccer, which is something uh, unusual. Let's go to the next topic, which will be something we wake up very early to see, which is the British Open. My own view of things is uh, an amazing performance by Darren Clark, very steady performance by a guy who's literally played in 20 British Opens, who underwent personal hardship when his wife died of cancer, and he's one of the most popular guys in the tour. I would say... Watching the first three rounds of the British Open, that it was kind of, um, I guess for lack of a word, it was kind of boring. It was a little bit tigerless. And uh, today was very exciting. When I say today, I'm talking about the last day, uh, day four, where uh, Phil Mickelson started off with uh, five birdies, was five under. Dustin Johnson was there. At the end, it seemed like the Americans willed it. Uh, a whole crew of Americans, Dustin Johnson, Mickelson, Fowler, Campbell, and Kim, and they couldn't catch Darren Clark. And uh, so, Spencer, I know we're, uh, we're both golfers, and we, uh, we watch a lot of golf, unlike soccer, which we don't watch at all. So tell, tell me your view of uh, the British Open, and what, what are your thoughts? Well, the British Open was a very exciting Sunday afternoon, and usually when you're on the other side of the pond, you don't see lefty contending that much, but today was definitely a different story. Throughout the first three rounds of this tournament, uh, lefty did a good job of uh, of just hanging in. That's all Phil really needed to do, and uh, and he made a huge charge this morning. Uh, he definitely got me out of bed on this Sunday morning. He was just draining putts from everywhere. That eagle on seven he had, the 20-foot birdies on, on four and five. Uh, he was just rocking the house. But uh, unfortunately for him to start five strokes behind and for him to rock the house that hard and only be tied with Darren Clark, who's just cruising at this point, it's hard to keep up that level of play, especially in the howling winds. And unfortunately, on the back nine, the winds, I, I believe, got to him on the putting green. Um, and, and he wasn't just uh, – and he was putting just um, – he was putting – I'd say he was putting decently, but then his iron play – uh, you know, he just kind of got, um, he just kind of went back down the earth. Um, it, it, you know, it's really, uh, but I have to commend Mickelson's efforts. But again, the champion, um, usually in sports, champions are defined by how bad their bad moments are. 
and you know the Pittsburgh Steelers in football and usually the champions of the British Open the bad shots that they make the bad plays are usually not that bad in the scheme of things and Darren Clark was rock solid all day long he wasn't off the charts today he wasn't playing unbelievable but he was staying steady those five foot par putts he was nailing he was hitting green after green just executing his shots not worrying about what was going on around him and uh and you don't he didn't have to be flashy today to win he stayed steady and had a nice 70 to close out the week uh no over 70 performances from Clark and um you know you look at the other Americans Fowler had his struggles today on some holes Mickelson had an awesome front nine but again on the back nine he stumbled Dustin Johnson you know on the front nine he he made some mistakes on the back nine to start off he was he was actually um he was really doing well but this one shot on the par 5 he could have hit it in two and uh and he bladed it right and that was his demise was that one shot very exciting tournament today but Darren Clark just rock solid it was hard to beat him today yeah i agree you know certainly uh when you look at the style of golf that they play over there um the golf swings change they um they take the club back halfway and they they finish low because they want to keep everything low so everything is a knockdown shot and here in the United States where we have uh, – there's really a premium on the high shot, the receptive greens, and certainly the, the Lynx golf that they play there is, is a whole different ball game. And with the, with the wind and the, the rain, these guys are constantly putting gloves on, putting on raid suits, taking them off. It looked very cold. I saw Ricky Fowler. You know, he's a pretty young guy. He looked at times uh, uh, overmatched by the weather. Uh, but – it is, you know, I've, I haven't played golf out there, Scotland or Ireland or, or England for that matter, and it just looks like a whole different game. And uh, Dustin Johnson looked like he was doing real well. It was just the one double bogey where he lost his momentum. So this is really a series of majors where Dustin Johnson's been right there and at the end kind of wilt. So I think in some ways it's a little bit like Rory McIlroy in the sense that Johnson just has to get over the top. He's got a great game. His his wood game is tremendous. His putting game was good. His iron game, if anything, could be a little bit erratic. And for the most part, he seems like a very steady player. But uh, it just seems that, that, that he's just a bridesmaid in the last few tournaments. But the man's got all kinds of talent. He hits the ball. He hits the ball out of the park, you know, with, with unbelievable distance. And it was great to see Mickelson, who's kind of been floundering uh, in the, the last year or two, suffering from something called psoriatic arthritis, which is an autoimmune disease, and he's taking some pretty serious medicines. So if, you don't hear Phil complaining about that. But uh, in any event, certainly um, the, the the fourth round really uh, made up for the, the lackluster boredom of the first three rounds, in my opinion. The third part of the triple header deals with professional tennis, the Wimbledon tournament that just was complete. And certainly, Spencer the Wizard has no lack of opinions with respect to the tournament, the victor, and the fate of the American tennis team, and particularly Andy Roddick. Wimbledon 2011, there emerged a new champion and a new face 
in the game of tennis, and I believe we will be seeing this familiar face for years to come. That is Serbian Novak Djokovic. You know, um, the last couple of years, it's really been Nadal and Federer. This year has really been a changing of the guard. Federer has kind of slumped down. He he is kind of, he is still playing at a high level, but there has definitely been a man that has taken his place in contending with Nadal, and that is Novak Djokovic. Uh, a couple of years ago, and really last year, we fought of um, it was really Federer and Nadal, as I pointed out. But Djokovic was on the level with Murray, who got to a couple finals in Grand Slams, but never really was was close to winning those finals that he was in. And he would mostly fall out in the semifinals. He would have some impressive wins in Grand Slams. Um, and then he had that win in Australia versus Sanga, but we never really considered him a contender for number one. Then this year, with his impressive streak of going 49 and one, and and it's really three men on top now. It's it's Djokovic who, who who's proven that he can beat Nadal, and he's really said that the changing this year has been due to his ability to just focus in on big points, just to stay consistent, and just to go after every point like it's his last. No no swing changes, nothing that dramatic. Just really focusing on the big points and, and um, his effort in Wimbledon, his will to win. He, he, he's got the talent. He's so quick on court. Um, now we're just waiting for Murray to merge um, into the um, into the conversation because now it's three players. It's Djokovic, it's Nadal up there, and Federer. I believe still got it. Still got another run in him. With the now attaining to the fate of American tennis, we got a young kid um, that I'm looking forward to seeing this year in Flushing Meadows. Um, I'm probably going to go out for the first time, and I'm going to take my. Uh, I'm going to, you know, travel down to the to the grandstand courts and watch Ryan Harrison. Um he uh he he's really the next face of American tennis. Last year he made it to the third round. He's got a big serve. He's a young guy and he gets the crowd involved. I'm going to be excited to see him. But um but you know, I was watching Davis Cup the other night on the Tennis Channel. Uh unfortunately Fish and Roddick uh they went 0 and 2 uh down uh, in Austin versus the Spanish team of, uh, of Ferrer and Lopez. But, um, but I could see that Roddick was going for bigger shots with his forehand. Um, I just want to point out that uh, I just want Andy Roddick to go back to Reebok Roddick that I saw from the 2000 to the 2004 years before he wore the Lacoste gear. He was really cranking his forehand, just fearless shots, and he was dictating play with his ground strokes the last couple of years ever since he's uh, changed from Brad Gilbert. Um, he's He's been slicing his backhand more, um, and his forehand has gotten really spinny, and I believe it will serve him better to go for flatter, all-out shots. So hopefully he'll bring b- back that Reebok connection when we see him in New York. Um, I'm excited for this uh, for this tennis season, for the U.S. Open Series coming up, and, uh, and I just want to say, Bruce, thanks for having me. Uh, July 19th, and we're we're still going with so many tremendous sports stories. And um, and thank you again for having me on the show. I had a blast as always. Well, thank you so much. In this edition, we're going to talk about neck injuries of all types, as well as diagnosis and treatment of neck injuries. This applies to sporting injuries, car accidents, falls, directed blood trauma. When patients come to see us with neck pain, 
the first discriminator is to decide whether or not there's a major injury to the nerves, discs, or spinal cord of the neck. We determine this largely from the history. So let's say we have Mr. Jones comes in and says, I have neck pain and stiffness. What I'll ask him is, do you have any weakness, numbness, or lack of dexterity in either arm? And I'll also ask him whether he has any symptoms down into his legs from his neck condition, and further, whether he's had any difficulty with bowel or bladder function. If he has a major neck injury, a big trauma, and he also has problems in the legs, that certainly alerts us to worry about the spinal cord area because the spinal cord in the neck anatomically relates not only to the arms but also to the legs. It goes down into the bowel and bladder. So if somebody just has neck pain and stiffness that does not radiate, in most cases, this will be what we call a soft tissue injury. That is, it'll be a problem with the muscles, ligaments, or tendons in the neck. And in most cases, this should get better in four to six weeks. What type of treatment do we prescribe? We usually prescribe medicines, anti-inflammatory agents, muscle relaxers, and at times, other types of analgesics. What type of treatment do we prescribe? We often prescribe physical therapy and often chiropractic care. That is gentle manipulation. Manipulation means when a doctor or a therapist essentially move and help to restore motion in the neck area. And the most important planes of motion include forward flexion, extension, which is raising your head back, bending to the side, and rotation. So in therapy... We'll often start off by ordering modalities. That'll be heat, coolness, ultrasound, in addition to, at times, some ancillary treatments, including a TENS unit, which is an electrical stimulation unit, and sometimes we'll prescribe a soft brace, something called a soft cervical collar that the patient could wear at bedtime in order for them to achieve some comfort. So number one is the mild injuries. Number two is what we call the radiculopathies. That is injuries that involve the discs and nerves in the neck. How can we tell that these are more serious cases? Well, often it's a matter of sitting down and talking to the patients themselves. And they will tell you, Doc, my neck pain radiated to my right, my right shoulder and arm. I've got weakness and I've got tingling in my hand. So what I usually do as a detective is I listen carefully to the story. I look at exactly the areas where the muscles are weak, and I test the muscles. I use a reflex hammer to check reflexes, and I'll also check sensation using things like sharp, dull, vibratory stimuli. In this case, let's call this case two, I find that the patient has weakness of the triceps, that's elbow extensors, weakness of finger extensors, as well as diminished sensation in the back of the head, particularly the middle finger, as well as a diminished triceps reflex. That is, when I bang on the triceps, I don't get a normal stretch reflex. I get a more diminished response. That heightens my sensitivity for pathology at C67. So what will I do then? I'll order an MRI of the neck. The MRI of the neck shows a pretty large herniated disc, a slip disc, at C67, pressing on the nerve. Well, how do I confirm there's nerve damage? 
I personally do a test called an EMG. An EMG stands for electromyography. You probably heard about this. And we do it right here at Grossinger Neuropaid Specialist. So if any of you within the sound of our voice are close to Pennsylvania, New Jersey, or Delaware, we are very proud of what we call our painless EMGs. That is, we use very small micro-thin needles, and you could call us at 610-521-6063 or 6064, and you could say, I heard Dr. Grossinger on the radio. My doctor sent me for an EMG, and I don't want a lot of pain. So what we have is very, very small needles. So the EMG involves an electrical stimuli. That is, the patient is sitting there. We will be stimulating various nerves going up to the neck. And then the second part involves those small needles. We'll actually take the needle, place it in the muscle, and the needle will be connected to a television, which is called an oscilloscope. The whole test takes about 30 to 60 minutes. And when we're done, I have an idea of what's going on. So let's say Mr. Jodes underwent this test, hypothetically. He had a herniated disc at C6-7, pitched nerve on the right side, right-sided symptoms. And when I stuck a needle into his triceps and pronator teres, I noted there was something called denervation, loss of nerve supply. Also, when I placed the needle in his neck, I also saw loss of nerve supply. So we have to understand anatomy as doctors. When there is the posterior primary rami of C7, that is the neck muscles, as well as the triceps, pronators, and figure extensors, I, as a doctor, can tell the patient, not only do you have a disc in your neck, but also a pinched nerve, a right C7 radiculopathy. That's what we call radiculopathy, which in Latin means a problem with the nerve. In pathy means disease of the nerve. So that's what is going on right there. So we've established the injury. A disc injury, nerve injury. In this case, the spinal cord is okay. That is, bowel, bladder, and legs are fine. How do we treat it? Well, number one, physical therapy, modalities, heat, ultrasound, gentle motion, bracing, as well as medicines, including anti-inflammatories, analgesics, and muscle relaxers. The, the next step in treatment is what we call interventional spine care. We do that right in the office here. We have two operating rooms. What we do is we have a very thin needle under fluoroscopy. A patient's laying on a table. We have a whole operating room team. What we'll do is we'll place that needle directly through a three-dimensional x-ray, find exactly the spot, and we'll put medicine, usually something, a corticosteroid called Decadron and a local anesthetic agent. And we'll usually do those injections every other week for three times. About 70% of the time, the patient has substantial benefit in pain relief and reduced muscle spasm with the epidural injections. Let's say the patient has progressive muscle weakness and associated ominous symptoms such as bowel or bladder and or leg weakness. That is, a herniated disc can impinge upon the spinal cord as well. At that point... We would send the patient to a spinal surgeon, that is either an orthopedic surgeon or a neurosurgeon, and if necessary, they may undergo a neck surgery. What are the most common neck surgeries? When one has a single disc which is confined, the usual surgery is called a laminectomy, that is the surgeon goes in, cuts out part of the bone on the back part of the neck, they'll go in 
and remove the disc. That's called a discectomy. And they'll stabilize the area with the fusion. There are many new ways to fuse the spine and protect it from further injury. They include bones, allograft, usually that is a bony graft from the patient's iliac crest, their hip bone. Rarely, they can use bones from a cadaver. And most recently, there is hardware, such as titanium plating. And that is, we have a metal plate and screws, which are attached and screwed in to protect the bones, the vertebral segments above and below the area of the injury. There's also a new technique, which is called an artificial disc replacement. The FDA has approved artificial disc replacement in the neck and back. They've approved it under certain circumstances where there is one level of disease, and therefore there is one artificial disc. So instead of fusing the area and putting bone in there or plates, what they'll do is they'll use an artificial disc, that is a disc which is synthetic and which has the same abilities to act as a shock absorber, and that is essentially placed surgically into the patient's body. These new artificial discs are extremely compliant, provide a lot of absorption, and have a very low risk of rejection from the patient themselves. So, we've gone through a whole litany of treatment, starting with diagnosis, as well as physical exam, MRIs, EFGs, injections, physical therapy. I've told you about surgery. Well, after the surgery, the patients will usually need to be in a hard collar, a Philadelphia collar, for anywhere between three and six months. And what that does is it allows the bones to fully stabilize and fuse and allows there to be structural return of stability to the neck. 70 to 80% of patients with surgery will do much better, though there are a few patients who may have something called a post-laminectomy syndrome. This is usually caused when there is excessive scarring in the area, which is called epidural scarring. The patients also can undergo recurrent disc herniations. That is, let's say this patient who had a C6-7 herniated disc got a fusion, and a year later they developed another herniated disc above the level of the fusion at C5-6. Regrettably, mechanically speaking, there is a risk of recurrent disc disease above and below the area of a fusion, and that has to do with the spinal mechanics. Following the surgery, following physical therapy, there's usually a period of rehabilitation for four to eight weeks, and then the patient can involve themselves in retraining, that is strengthening the muscles, stretching, and essentially gradually returning back to either employment or returning back to training for their sport. If this is an athletic injury, they will often go through a very graded return to sports. The exertion will be monitored typically by a trainer or exercise physiologist, and eventually the patient could could go back to playing sports. With respect to neck surgeries, the typical time for professional athletes, it's usually about a year out of service. So with professional hockey and football, somebody goes through a neck surgery, laminectomy, infusion, they're usually out for a year. There are some rare cases where patients, typically due to their age, are advised not to ever return back to their sport of interest. So let's summarize. In this segment, we talked about 
what happens with neck injuries. We talked about being the doctor and receiving the information and how the story itself can tailor us to appropriate treatment, to appropriate diagnosis, treatment, including MRIs, EMGs, physical therapy, chiropractic, injections, and surgery. So this is a pretty comprehensive overview, and we hope you enjoyed this segment of Bruce the Sports Doc. You just heard a nice compendium of interviews of New York Giants players celebrating the 25th year anniversary of their Super Bowl victory against the Denver Broncos back in 1986. The defensive mastermind of that team was Bill Belichick, well known as the current coach of the New England Patriots. Belichick has five Super Bowl rings. This is the first time in many years that he's rejoined his former Giants teammates, including coach Bill Parcells and the players from the defensive side of the ball. We hear Sandy Grossman interviewing Bill Belichick. Enjoy the interview. from Harry, reunion coming. What's your reaction? Uh, excitement. Uh, a lot of great memories from the, uh, the 86 season. It's been so long, but it was such a special team and uh, a special time to... Um, you know, and for all of us to come back together again and, and to see each other after after 25 years, um, it's, it's really uplifting, and it's been a great weekend. Is there any common thread of what people are saying to you, all the players? Uh, I think it's uh, yeah. I, I think the common thread is you know, a it's good to be back together and see each other again, and and b just how unselfish and, and what a close knit team this was, and uh, I think that that you, you, that's come out as well this weekend. You've been with a couple of teams, and I was telling you that it just seems like it's an unusual situation in this day and age, or it's 25 years ago, that, that that there was such a love affair among those players and how they bonded and everything else. It's just kind of interesting to see and be part of. Well, yeah, it really was. I mean, first of all, to start with, there was a lot of great players on that team, and, and we had some outstanding, talented players. But the chemistry of the team and, and their ability to work with each other and, and really go out and compete. I mean, they love to compete. They love to compete. They love to... <clears throat> They love to compete, they love to play, and we saw that every day on the practice field as well as you know, on Sundays competitively against our opponents. But uh, those guys love football, and uh, they had a lot of fun playing, and they played hard, uh, and they obviously played very well. Would you ever take your team to Pace University? <laughs> well, it was, um, you know, it was just a different time then. It really was. It was, it was not really big enough. Uh, but in its own way, it was um, it, it brought everything closer together. It wasn't a you know training camp wasn't real comfortable, and, and I don't think it was supposed to be then. It was supposed to be a little bit of a you know a challenge and um, some discomfort, putting up with uh, less than ideal conditions, and then you move in a giant stadium, which at that point was you know one of the top facilities in, in the league. And uh, you really appreciated the, the offices, the spacious locker rooms, the meeting rooms, the video facilities, the training room, all those things uh, that weren't there for training camp. Uh, training camp was more Spartan-like, uh, but, you know, I think there was a place for that, too. I think it probably made all of us appreciate, uh, appreciate the stadium, and, and it probably toughened the team up a little bit. Most of the guys at the team mentioned the geese droppings. There was a lot of that. <laughs> There was a lot of geese droppings. The field was tight. Uh, you, you know, you kind of run into the fence. There was a lot of space out on sidelines. Um, it was, uh, as I said, it was uh, it was Spartan. There was just one heating system in the building, so 
the air conditioning to keep the locker room cool because of the number of players down there and, and the heat and everything in the locker room, you had to have it up full blast. So that meant if you were upstairs in the building, um, you know, it was like Antarctica. You know, it was just, you know, 35 degrees. You're walking around with sweatshirts and, uh, you know, wool caps and everything else trying to keep warm. So it was, uh, you know, it's a little too cool. They also talk about at the end of practice, certain drills with the goal line, whether it be the uh, helmet to helmet, whatever it was. Is that just something, what was that designed to do? Well, I think, uh, you know, Bill uh, set up those practices so we would finish with live competitive practice on the goal line at the end of practice. So practice would build up. You do individual drills and you do some uh, group drills where the, you know, receivers work against the DBs and so forth. And you do some team drills. But then it would finish with, you know, competitive live goal line. So, um, you know, four or five, six plays on the goal line, offense against defense. Those guys had a lot of pride and, and uh, you know, offensive guys want to score and defensive guys want to stop them. And it was, you know, good, clean, hard football, uh, very competitive. And, and again, it was a great way to end practice because it, you know, had a lot of energy and it had a high level of competitiveness. You go ahead and you win a Super Bowl. How did that affect the rest, rest of your coaching career? Um, how did it affect the rest of my coaching career? I never thought about that one. Uh, let's see. You know, uh, I'd say the main thing is it just gives you that satisfaction and gratification uh, that you've accomplished it. You know, like you can never take that away. You earned it. It's something that you can't buy. You can't. Uh, you know, you you you've got to earn it. You got to go out there and competitively beat the San Francisco's and the Washingtons and the Denvers. And, and all the challengers along the way to get there. And that's what makes it so special. So uh, I think the, the feeling of pride and accomplishment uh, and the sense of that team, that time uh, is, is really special. Uh, you know, I think as a coach, you learn from every season, you learn from every game, you learn from every situation. And so that, that's a part of it. But, you know, I mean, I learned things in 84 and 85 as well as 86 that have helped me along in my coaching career. But I think the, the pride of the achievement of that season is is something that you always carry with you and I guess it always gives you a little confidence that you know what you've done it I mean at least you're not going through your whole career saying well you know we never really won the big game the championship um, fortunately I, I've been able to, to say that I've won five of those so you know that's that's a very good feeling I see you're wearing both rings today I am okay um, you don't get a when do you wear those hardly ever uh, the the three Super Bowl rings uh, from New England, kind of on the the times when we've given out, you know, the the, the ring ceremonies at the end of the year, and uh, I don't think I've had probably the Giants rings on in Giants company since uh, since '90, so that's been, you know, 20 years. When you put it on, it bring back some memories. Oh, sure it does. Yeah, absolutely. You look at those rings, and and you see, uh, you know, a year of work really. You know, it's a body of work. It's it's their spring preparation, uh, the draft, the spring mini camps, training camp. Uh, all the all the regular season games and, and your regular season record that put you in the playoffs and then you know the playoff wins and, and all the Super Bowl wins and, and you you see uh, in a reflection of that that trophy you see the the faces of of the players that you coached and, and the coaches that you coached with and all the other people in the organization that supported you the video people the trainers the um, you know the support staff uh, so forth all those people and and realize what a team effort it took to you know, to get that. You had some unbelievably talented defensive players. Oh my God. What was that like? <laughs> uh, maybe a good coach. Huh? We had, 
we had so many good defensive players. It was really, um, it, was, it, was, it was a great thrill as a coach to be able to work with that type of talent. We had, you know, Jim Burt and, and Eric Howard as a backup, and, and Eric, you know, really went on to have a tremendous NFL career. You know, one of the best players in his era, and the defensive line of, you know, Dorsey and, and Leonard Marshall and George Martin, you know, was a, I mean, those three guys, Curtis McGriffin, the running game, I mean, they were very talented players. Uh, the linebacker core was truly special. I mean, talking about two Hall of Famers with Carson and Taylor, uh, Carl Banks, who, you know, has got to be right there amongst the best players in the league at that time. Uh, Pepper Johnson, uh, you know, another tremendous player that, you know, probably didn't get the credit that he deserved because of the people around him. Uh, it was just, you know, an outstanding group. And, and the secondary, you know, Terry Kennard was, was one of the best safeties I've ever coached. Uh, he got hurt in the 86 season, and Herb Wells stepped in and, and played very well in, in his role when he had an opportunity. Kenny, of course, Mark Collins, and and uh, Perry Williams on the corner. So it was it was a solid group with a lot of confidence. Guys that were very good in the kicking game that came out of that group too. Uh, you know, like Lasker in the '86 team, and uh, Elvis Patterson, obviously uh, another very talented player that uh, you know gave us plays in the kicking game as well as defense. So it was a strong group. But that front seven, I would say that uh, you know they were almost borderline unblockable. And then. Um, Byron Hunt and Andy Hedden with the other outside linebackers behind Taylor and Banks, you know, probably could have played for just about anybody in the league, and, and we were fortunate to have them as, you know, depth at linebacker position, even though they played in some sub-situations and goal line and things like that, but uh, in all honesty, they probably could have started for, you know, two-thirds of the teams in the league, so it was a tremendous collection of talent that, uh, you know, that Bill and, and the personnel staff had put together. With that in mind, you go to your next coaching job. I mean, now you're saying, okay, what do I have? How do you, how do you, how do you approach it? How do you turn it around? I mean, you don't have those same people anymore. Yeah, well, I mean, I think you got to recognize that, that that's a special group. I don't know if anybody, you know, had those people, you know, or, or any teams had, you know, a comparable group of, of uh, players like that at, those, at that front seven, you know, with the linebackers and the defensive line. I mean, it was a, a tremendous collection of talent at, at those positions. And, uh, you know, and one of the things that was really interesting, I mean, I'll never forget this as a coach, is just all those days in training camp and in practice of, of watching Mark Bavaro go against Carl Banks and Lawrence Taylor. I mean, the fans, you know, didn't get a chance to see that. You know, on Sunday you're seeing Mark Bavaro block somebody else or Lawrence Taylor pass rush against somebody else. Or, But, you know, day after day in practice, I mean, those guys went against each other and there was nobody better than any of them. I mean, nobody could block better than Bavaro and, and Taylor and Banks. I mean, were as good as there was, you know, playing a tight end. And, and um, you know, I really think Mark Bavaro is a guy that, that from what I, what I saw, what I know of professional football, I mean, that's a Hall of Fame tight end. And the number of times that, that he blocked Reggie White one-on-one -on -one with no help uh, is, you know, better than anybody else has done, better than most tackles and guards have done against Reggie White. And, but I saw him do that competitively against Taylor and Banks. I mean, those were great battles. And um, it, was, it was a tremendous uh, tribute, I think, to the talent that we had on that football team. He said he modeled himself against guys like Ditka, people like that. Well, uh, you know, I didn't, I didn't coach against Ditka. Uh, you know, he was out of the league. He was a coach by the time I came into the league. So, you know, I can't really comment too much about him as a player. But I don't think there are any better blocking tight ends than Mark Bavaro. There may be as good. I don't think there were any better. 
uh, because he was strong enough to handle the Reggie Whites and, and the big defensive ends out there, and he was athletic enough to, to block the Lawrence Taylors and the Carl Bankses and you know guys like that. I mean, there were some great outside linebackers that during that era. You know, Ricky Jackson and. Um, you know, right down the line, Charles Mann, Dexter Manley at Washington. Uh, so there were there were a lot of good outside players, Fred Dean, all those guys. You know he, and and he never got any help. And the Giants were an off tackle running team. I mean they ran behind him. They didn't run away from him. So, um, you know he was pretty special and then athletic to make plays in the passing game down the field, uh, which Phil Sims and, and Bavaro you know hit those seam passes you know down in the red area and in the twenty to thirty yard line and. And again, we saw those day after day in practice, and we knew they were coming, and we had good players covering them. And again, they, you know, they, we, we had a hard time stopping them in practice. So, um, you know, going against Sims and Bavaro and, and guys like that every day in practice, you know, definitely made our defense better too. Now the weekend just about over, guys going back their own ways. Yeah. What are your thoughts? Uh, touch of sadness, but happiness that it all came together and, and we were able to you know share and enjoy the experiences uh, after 25 years it was a special team and and again our achievement was, was so special that year um, you know we're a part of it nobody will ever be able to take it away from us and, and it'll only belong to us nobody else can really enter that circle so uh, it makes it special uh, sad to see everybody go but at the same time uh, that's life you know we've all moved on but you know these guys have done well you know they've uh, you, 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 I remember these guys coming in as, as rookies, you know, Jim Burt and uh, Harry was there when I got there, George was there when I got there, but most of the rest of them, Lawrence coming in as a rookie and Jim Burt and, and Pepper and Mark Collins and you know, all those guys, Carl, and, and they've just become such men, you know, in, in every sense of the word. They've accomplished so much, um, both in and out of football and, you know, with their personal lives and their families. And, and so it's just, you know, awesome the way that they've, they've grown. and. Uh, they made great contributions to the game and, and to that team and, and to me personally. And, and I know that I'm a much better coach for having been with them. And, and the fact of the matter is I probably wouldn't have gotten the opportunities that I did in coaching without uh, great plays from Harry and Lawrence and George and, you know, Pepper and Carl and Jim Bird and, and all the rest of them. I mean, they, you know, they made me look like a good coach. You sound like a proud father. <laughs> well. It's funny because at that time, I, you know, George and Harry were actually older than I was, uh, and then you know the other kids came in, but I was only a few years older than them. I came to the, you know, to the Giants when I was, what, 28, 29. It was my first year there. So, um, you know, Sims and I came in that year in '79. Sims was, you know, a draft choice in April, and and I came in there in February. So. Um, you know, we were there to, I mean, we literally grew, grew through that, that organization together until I left after the 90 season. And uh, so in some cases it's, it's a fatherhood kind of thing, but in another case it's, it's almost like a brother, you know, because you're, you're kind of at a comparable age. And, and you know, I was go going through the, my career uh, as a coach as they were going through theirs as opposed to... Uh, say the way it is now at New England where I'm, you know, the head coach, but now, you know, my career had already been, you know, pretty, you know, established to a degree with my other, my other, you know, jobs. Great. Thank you very much. You're welcome. You're welcome. I'm here with Dr. Joseph Fernandez, doctor trained at Rutgers University in sports medicine. He played professional football in Puerto Rico for 15 years. He's treated hundreds of athletes many football players, 
And here we're going to talk about one of the most common injuries we see in sports. It's called the meniscal tear. So firstly, Dr. Fernandez, welcome back to the show. Thank you for having me back. It's a pleasure like always. Well, today it's a very timely discussion because I understand there were two rather important baseball players who suffered meniscal tears. Tell us about that. Of course, um, to all sports fans that listen to us, they will know for sure. In this Ulster break, we got two very important players out with meniscal tear. One is Alex Rodriguez, third payman for the New York Yankees, representing. And a very important player to be consistent for a lot of years, and a lot of people like it a lot, is Chipper Jones, third baseman for the Atlanta Braves. They both sustained a meniscus tear, and they both went to surgery during the All-Star break. That's why we're talking about very recent injuries in sports in this program. So they both out four to six weeks after having surgery in the meniscus. So when we talk about meniscus tear, it's one of the most common injuries. Athletes, particularly who play in contact sport, are more predisposed, but also baseball players because they do a lot of squatting and, and rotation movement and bending, so they're really predisposed for meniscal tear. However, anyone at any age, including young kids and older uh, people, can tear the meniscus. It's very important to understand that because this is not just an injury for athletes. It can happen to anyone at any moment. And we, when you hear about that someone have a cartilage injury in the knee, they talk about meniscus. So just to reinforce that, when you hear a cartilage injury, what that really means is a meniscus injury. So the meniscus is a very important part of the knee. And I think it's important. What I'd like to do before we talk about the injury itself, Dr. Fernandez, I'd like you to discuss the anatomy of a meniscus. What is a meniscus? What does it do? Where is it located? Of course. When we talk about the anatomy, uh, let, let's get a, a quick review of the knee. The knee is a form of three bones in, in, in the joint. One of the bones is the thigh bone, the chin bone, and the kneecap, which is the patella. What the meniscus is? The meniscus is a wedge-shaped piece of cartilage that acts as a choke absorbers between the thigh bone and the chin bone putting it that way. And I, I like this example a lot for all these people to play golf would understand pretty good. When we push the tee and the board in the top, the tee have like a surface area, have like a little, the borders are coming out. So it's a third surface area. So the ball, when you put it on the tee, don't fall away. So imagine if the tee is completely flat and doesn't have the surface area, the ball will never stand on top of the tee. So the meniscus work like that surface area in the shin bone, so when the thigh bone is on top of the shin bone, doesn't fall away to the sides. That's the sample that I like to use. So the shin bone do, do not just work like a, as a shock as over, so it's just giving surface area, stability, and cushion, which means that the meniscus is a really tough and rubbery uh, material to help to give you that cushion and stability in the knee. So, the meniscus is a rubbery, hard area. You talked about how it's not flat, how it sits in, and as far as the bones, the thigh bone is called the femur, and the two lower bones are the tibia, which is called the shin bone, and also a non-weight-bearing bone on the side is called the uh, fibula. Mm -hmm. And so, we have the anatomy here. You talked about 
different types of injuries. You talked about how baseball players, and again, you talked about two third basemen. You talked about A Rod, and you talked about Chipper Jones. I remember being, you know, being a Phillies fan, I saw Chipper Jones limping around a lot. And he couldn't even hardly run the bases. But it looks like both of those athletes, uh, particularly Chipper, waited electively. He was actually able to play on it, but not run. But the fact is, both of them tore their menisci, the meniscus structures. So that leads me right up to the next question, Dr. Fernandez. Could you please describe the different tears and also tell us about how we treat it and whether if the lateral part, which is called the side of it, or the medial, which is the middle part of the meniscus, and the meniscus kind of looks like a C. It kind of, looking at a picture of the meniscus, it looks like a C. The outer part is uh, the outer part of the C. The inner part, there, there's kind of a discontinuity between the top and bottom. So given that anatomy, and that's, that's the, uh, how we look at it cross-sectionally, tell us a bit about the type of meniscal tears. Of course, and like you mentioned, that's exactly how the meniscus look. It looks like a C. And it's different type of, of, of meniscal tear. Um, we're going to talk about around five of type of meniscus. The, one, the first one we're going to talk about is the longitudinal. It's mainly located in the outside of the meniscus. When we talk about the outside of the lateral versus the inside of the medial aspect, it's a very, very, very key difference. In the outside and the lateral part is a very rich blood supply, which means that is a high percentage of recovery of that area. But the inside is lacking that blood supply. So it's making really, really hard for the body to, uh, to, to regenerate and to improve that healing. So you probably, when you have an injury in the medial aspect, you will definitely will have surgery and will probably have to remove that piece because it's not going to heal due to the lack of blood supply. The other, the other type is the buckle handle is almost located always in the inside and it's very related when you turn your ACL you're probably going to have a medial meniscal turn it's going to be buckle handle the flap tear is another type of tear when you call about flap as the words say you got a piece of cartilage flop, uh, flop, floating around that kind of patient will definitely present with a locking popping sensation they say they feel like they have something inside the knee, and that's exactly what it is, a piece of cartilage floating around. The other type of third is a transfer. It, it goes all the way across the meniscus, and it's one of the most common that you definitely want to have surgery to repair that. And last but not least is the torn horn. In this type of, of third, the, the piece of cartilage is not floating around, but it's apart for the C-shape of the meniscus. So you got like a foreign body in between, the knee, in between the knee. So you gave us a really good summary of the different types of tears. You told us that the athlete could feel a pop. They might be able to still walk on their knee. But however, over two or three days, things get much worse. The knee will get swollen. It will get stiff. And that will usually bring the patient to medical attention. And when they come into your office, they'll tell you that story. And then, doctor, tell us about when you do a physical exam of the knee, what type of test will you do? How will you know there's a meniscal tear? And what type of imaging will you order? Definitely. Let's, uh, let's, go, let's go by step. First, how, how is that going to happen? People always ask, how, how I torn my meniscus? Well, definitely in sports, uh, players may squat and twist the knee. That's one of the most common. 
the, that motion of squatting down and twisting, doing any kind of motion, would definitely cause a tear. Direct contact, like a tackle. Somebody can tackle for outside, putting pressure to the inside of the knee as a, when you turn your ACL, for example. You definitely tore your, your meniscus. But other people have a degenerative meniscus tear cartilage. So the meniscus over time get a little weaker and weaker. So you can tore your meniscus more easy. For example, getting out of bed. So you get out of bed, twist a little your knee, you can turn your meniscus. How the symptoms? As you mentioned before, you can turn your meniscus. You maybe hear a pop. It's very, very common to that to tell you, ah, I hear a pop when it happened. When you hear that word, mm, meniscus have to be in the back of your mind. But the majority of the athletes get a little pain in the knee, didn't know exactly what happened, like it happened to me. I got a meniscus surgery myself, and when I had the injury, I didn't know it was meniscus. I took my day off the game. I put myself out of the game, put some ice for a few days. Next week, I was, I was playing back on the field. I didn't know I had a meniscus until my knee gave away on me. And then I figured out hmm, something is going on around here. And it's very common to happen to a lot of people. They injured the knee. They didn't know it was that bad. You don't have too much swelling. You don't turn any other ligaments. So your, your knee is kind of stable. And suddenly you just twist to one direction without running or nothing. And your knee gives away a lock on you. That's a sign you got a meniscal tear. What the other symptoms? Obviously, you're going to have pain. Swelling, stiffness. Not as much as ligament torn. But you're going to have some swelling. But the two important signs and symptoms that I want people to understand is the locking one, when you feel that you need lock on you because the only thing that can happen is meniscus. And when you need give away on you. It's never going to give away on you if your meniscus are good. So if you need give away on you, meniscus is involved. Um, without treatment also, when you, if you turn your meniscus that it is not that bad, but you don't, you don't search for treatment because you didn't know what happened, they can come get worse and you can have a loose body so you probably didn't have the flat tear you probably have a longitudinal but because you didn't want to to seek to medical attention it's continue to get worse until the piece of cartilage is floating around then you start having the symptoms so what do you do when you come to the office we're going to do a physical exam so you if you come to to see your uh, grossing and neuro pain specialist with expert on this. So we're going to do a very focused physical exam. The history is the most important. When I hear your history, I'm definitely going to have an idea if you have a meniscal tear or not. And I'm going to do two tests on your knees. The first one is called McMurray test, which is very specific for meniscus. Is I do a, a specific motion with the knee, and I'm going to spread a clicking sound and a, and a pain in the patient. That's going to tell me you probably have a meniscal tear. It's not 100% sensitive, but it's, 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 it's close to it. And the second test is the Apley test, which is also very specific for meniscus. After I do that two tests, I have a high suspicion of the meniscus. And then I will ask you to squat down. If you squat down, refer pain, that three tests, that doesn't, that doesn't miss. Then I'm going to send you for x-rays, and let me explain that. X-rays don't show meniscus, but it's going to give me an idea. It's going to show me all the stuff like like space between the joints, the medial space on the lateral. If I see a decrease in the medial joint space, probably your meniscus there is torn because if you had your meniscus that we talk about, it's going to give you a choke absorber, and the distance between the space is going to be the same. So if one of the distance is decreased, you probably have a meniscus tear. But the story is going to confirm is the MRI. So, again, this is a very common injury. People will feel a pop. It is such that 
they will not always know. Like when I tore my Achilles, I couldn't even begin to stand up. I mean, there was no way I was doing anything. I wasn't walking. So this is more of a cryptic injury. Could be a silent type of injury. And again, a lot of athletes like yourself, you know, you figure it's just a strain. And you're going to ice it, you'll be fine. But when the knee keeps popping out, locking. So again, the locking and popping is a part that's very suggestive of a meniscus tear. What we have is different types of treatment. One type of treatment is conservative treatment at rest. We talked about that mostly for the lateral, which is the side part. Because there's a good blood supply, that that might heal better. Mm-hmm. Also, we, you talked about PRP. You talked about stem cells, which are new, exciting treatments. And finally, what I believe we're going to do is next week, I want to talk about surgical treatment of meniscus tears. And I also want to talk about rehabilitation for meniscus tears. So just to summarize um, today, we talked about the meniscus tear. So when you hear somebody say they have a torn cartilage, it's a torn meniscus. We talked about the function of the meniscus and their menisci, which are either on the side, laterally, or medially in the middle. It's a C-shaped structure. Not easy to say at this time of day. And there will be a whole host of symptoms. We talked about the physical exam. We talked about the MRIs. And we talked a little bit about some of the new and exciting treatments, PRP and stem cells, in the sense that there might be a time when stem cells might be used either alone or in combination with surgery to shorten recovery times, just like Bartolo Colon. So essentially, uh, it was a great day in the sense that we learned about meniscus tears. Hopefully it will be great that we won't have to deal with any, but the reality is we probably will because it's so common. So again, Dr. Fernandez, I wanted to thank you so much for for joining us here again on the fourth segment of Bruce the Sports Doc. And as always, you could close with the usual saying that we have. Thank you for having me, and go out and work out. Sounds beautiful. Thanks again, everybody. Be well. Enjoy the summer weather. And we'll see you next week for the newest edition of Bruce the Sports Doc. Thanks for joining the discussion this week on Bruce the Sports Doc. Tune in next Tuesday at 2 p.m. Pacific Time, 5 p.m. Eastern Time for another edition with Dr. Bruce Grossinger on the Voice America Sports Channel. We'll see you then.